Hello, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Reveal Thine Truth podcast, episode 6, the disappearance of Gene Spangler. Before we get right, right into it, as always, follow us on Instagram at Show, as well as subscribe to us on <coughs> Anchor, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, and many more. So, without further ado, let's get right into it. Right, so, Gene Spangler was born in Seattle, Washington. <coughs> she attended Franklin High School in Los Angeles. California and graduated in 1941. As a teen, Spangler had danced with the Earl Cowell Theatre and Florentine Gardens. In 1942, Spangler married manufacturer Dexter Benner. (coughs) 1920-2007, they had a daughter Christine, born April 22, 1944, and divorced in 1946. Spangler and Benner engaged in a long custody battle over their daughter until Spangler was eventually awarded custody in 1948. At the time of her disappearance, she lived with her mother Florence, five-year-old daughter Christine, brother Edward and sister-in-law Sophie on Colgate Avenue in the Parc Le Bray residential complex near Wilshire Boulevard. On Friday, October 7th, 1949, Spangler left her home in Los Angeles around 5pm. <coughs> she left her daughter with Sophie and said that she was meeting Benner to discuss a light, late child support payment. After that, she was going to work on a night shoot for a film. Two hours after leaving, Spangler called home and spoke with Sophie as well as her daughter. She told Sophie she would have to work the full eight hours (coughs) and would probably not return home that evening. That evening, sorry. At that time... Spangler's mother, Florence, was out of town, visiting family in Louisville, Kentucky. The following morning, October 8th, Sophie went to the police and filed a missing person report after Spangler failed to return home. Though Spangler had told her sister-in-law that she was going to work on a film set after she met with Benner, police checked with studios and the Screen Extras Guild and found no records indicating she had worked that night. A saleswoman at Farmer's Market, a grocery store only a few few blocks from Spangler's home, recalled seeing her browsing in the store around 6pm and noted that she appeared to be waiting for someone. This was the last known sighting of Spangler. Police questioned Benner about her statement to Sophie that she was going to meet him about his child support payments. He claimed that he had not seen his former wife for several weeks. His new wife, Lynn Lasky Benner, 1924-2019, to whom he had been married only one month, corroborated his story. Handbag and note discovery. On October 9th, 1949, Spangler's purse was found near the Femme Dell entrance of Griffin Park in Los Angeles, approximately 5.5 miles from her home. Both of the straps on one side of the purse were torn loose as if it had been ripped from her arm. 60 police officers and over 100 Volunteers searched 
the 4,107-acre natural terrain park, but no other clues were found. There was no money in the purse. Sophie said that she had no money when she left her, her house the evening of her disappearance. So the police ruled out robbery as a motive. When she left her, her house, the, the purse addressed to a Kirk, which read, Kirk can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It will work best this way. While the mother is away, the note ended in a comma. Neither Kirk nor Dr. Scott should, could be located, and neither Spangler's family nor her friends knew anyone by those names. When Spangler's mother, Florence, returned to Los Angeles, she told police that someone named Kirk had picked up Jean at her house twice, but stayed in his car and did not come in. Police questioned every doctor with the last name Scott in Los Angeles, but none of them had a patient with the last name Spangler or Benner. Her married name, Spangler, had once been involved with, a, with an abusive man she called Scotty, but her lawyer said she had not seen him since 1945. Griffin Park was searched over the following week by over 200 volunteers and law enforcement. During the search, one volunteer dog dug up a denim Los Angeles County Jail uniform in a shallow hold, but no other belongings of Spangler were found. Seemed a bit iffy to me. Maybe... Jean Spangler were, was meeting someone <coughs> she knew. Or her ex-husband knew of the meeting, but maybe something went wrong. Who knows? Let me know what you think. Theories and alleged sightings. At the time she disappeared, Spangler had recently completed filming a bit part in the film Young Man with a Horn, starring Kirk Douglas. This led to public speculation that he was the Kirk mentioned in the note found in her purse. Upon reading about the discovery of the note, Douglas himself called the police and denied that he knew Spangler. Later, when interviewed via telephone by the head of the investigating team, Douglas admitted that he had talked and kidded with her a bit on set, but, had, but that he had never spent time with her outside of the film production. On October 12th, Douglas gave a formal press statement in which he said, I told Detective Chief Todd Brown that I didn't remember the girl or the name until a friend recalled it was she who worked as an extra in a scene with me in my picture, young man with a horn. Then I recalled that she was a tall girl in a green dress. I talked and kidded with her a bit on the set, but I never saw her before or after that and have never been out with her. Spangler's girlfriends told police that she was three months pregnant when she disappeared and she had talked about having an abortion, which at the time was illegal. Witnesses who frequented the same nightclubs and bars that Spangler did told police they had heard of a former medical student known as Doc who performed abortions for money but police could not locate him nor prove that he existed. The theory that Spangler disappeared under circumstances related to a botched abortion attempt was investigated by the Los Angeles Police Department, LAPD. Spangler had also told her friend 
actor Robert Cummings that she was having a casual affair at the time but did not mention the identity of the man. When Cummings asked her if it was serious, she responded, no, but I'm having the time of my life. <coughs> so, what we have gathered so far is there is a county, county jail um, top jacket found in the woods. <coughs> no, si- no sign of Jean Spangler anywhere. She was three months pregnant, wanting an abortion, but abortion was illegal, and she was having an affair. So, but you would only be having. So, was the person she was having having an affair with married? Or was she secretly married to someone else? And that's where the affair comes in. Now, I'm a bit confused. So, if anyone can enlighten me, then please go ahead. At the time, some newspapers reported that Spangler was feared to be one of several female victims in a series of killings in Los Angeles, potentially linked to the Black Dahlia murder in 1947. Another theory investigated by police was that Spangler's disappearance was related to Los Angeles gangsters with whom she purportedly was associated. According to historian John Lewis, in Torgantund. Lewis claims that her acquaintance, sorry, Lewis in his book Hard Boiled, Hollywood, sorry, Crime and Punishment in Post War Los Angeles, Spangler had worked for a time as a dancer at Florentine Gardens, a nightclub owned by Mark Hansen and Niels Thor Grunund. Lewis claims that her acquaintance with Hanson and Grunland put her in orbit of various mob affiliates, including Anthony Camaro and Mickey Curran. Spangler had allegedly been seen with Davy Ogle, an associate of Curran's, in Palm Springs, as well as in Las Vegas, Nevada, with Ogle and Frank Nicoli and another associate of Curran's. Ogle disappeared on October 9th, 1949, two days after Spangler. This led police to investigate the possibility that Spangler and Ogle, who was under indictment for conspiracy, had fled to avoid prosecution. Police interrogated Thomas Ellery Evans, a gangster and acquaintance of Ogle, during their investigation in April 1950. Spangler's sister, Betsy, testified that neither she nor her sister were ever acquainted with Ogle, Cohen, or any of his associates. In 1950, a customs agent in El Paso, Texas, reported seeing Ogle and a woman who looked like Spangler in a local hotel. The hotel clerk identified Spangler from a photograph, but neither Ogle nor Spangler's name appeared on the hotel register. Maybe they did, but maybe under a pseudonym, a pseudonym, a, f- a fake name. Aftermath. Shortly after Spangler disappeared, custody of her and Benner's daughter, Christine, was temporarily awarded to Benner, on October 27, 1949. The following year, a custody battle ensued between Benner and Florence, to whom he denied visitation with Christine. Benner defied a court order that he permit Spangler's mother to visit the child. When he was ordered to serve 
15 days in jail for being in contempt of court, he fled California with his daughter, later settling in Florida. The LAPD continues, continued the search and circulated Spangler's picture for several years. In an unsuccessful attempt to find her or any reliable leads, columnist Loretta Parsons offered a $1,000 reward for information concerning Spangler's disappearance. All locations, despite a nationwide search, no further clues have surfaced. Possible sightings included Northern and Southern California, Phoenix, Arizona and Mexico City over the next two years, but none of, the, none of those sightings could be validate, validated. She is still listed as a missing person and the LAPD has not closed the case. So, the case is still open. <coughs> Jean Elizabeth Spagler, September 2nd, 1923, Seattle, Washington, disappeared October 7th, 1949, aged 26, Los Angeles, California, status missing for 70 years, seven months and 28 days so the case is presumably still open so that was Jean Spangler and now, and now we're gonna go over to another Case, or not case, but the dis the disappearance of Mary Celeste. So that starts with the early history. The keel of the future Mary Celeste was laid in late eighteen sixty at the shipyard of Joshua. Jewish in the village of Spencer's Island on the shores of the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia. The ship was constructed of locally felled timber with two masts and was rigged as a brigantine. She was carved built with the hull planking thrust rather than overlapping. She was launched on May 18, 1861. Given the name Amazon and registered at nearby Parsborough on June 10th, 1861, her registration documents described her as a 99.3 feet, 30.3 meter in length, 25.5 feet, 7.8 meters broad, with a depth of 11.7 feet and of 198.42 gross tonnage. She was owned by a local consortium of nine people, headed by Jewish. Among the colonists was Robert McLennan, the ship's first captain, for her maiden voyage in June 1861. Amazon sailed to five islands to take on a cargo of timber for passage across the Atlantic to London. After supervising the ship's loading, Captain McLennan fell ill, his condition worsened, and Amazon returned to Spencer's Island, where McLennan died on June 19th. <coughs> John Nutting Parker took over as captain and resumed the voyage to London. In the course of which, Amazon encountered further misadventures. She collided with fishing equipment in the narrows of East Port, Maine, and after leaving London, ran into and sank a brig in the English Channel. 
Parker remained in command for two years, during which Amazon worked mainly in the West Indies trade. She crossed the Atlantic to France in November 1861, and in Marseille was the subject of a painting, possibly by Honoré de Pellegrin, a well-known maritime artist of the Marseille's school. In 1863, Parker was succeeded by William Thompson, who remained in command until 1867. These were quiet years. Amazon's mate later recalled that we went to the West Indies, England and the Mediterranean, what we called the foreign trade. Not a thing unusual happened. In October 1867, at Cape Breton Island, Amazon was driven ashore in a storm and was so badly damaged that her owners abandoned her as a wreck. On October 15th, she was acquired as a derelict by Alexander McBean of Glasgow Bay, Nova Scotia. New owners, new name. <coughs> Within a month, McBean sold the wreck to a local businessman who in November 1868 sold it to Richard W. Haynes, an American marina from New York. Haynes paid $1,750 for the wreck and then spent $8,825 restoring it. He made himself her captain and in December 1868 registered her with the Collector of Customs in New York as an American vessel under a new name, Mary Celeste. <coughs> in October 1869, the ship was seized by Hing's creditors and sold to a New York consortium headed by James H. Winchester. During the next three years, the composition of, his, of this consortium changed several times, although Winchester retained at least a half share throughout. There is no record on Mary Celeste's trading activities during this period. Early in 1872, the ship underwent a major refit costing $10,000 <clears throat> which enlarged her considerably. Her length was increased to 103 feet, her breadth to 25.7 feet, and her depth to 16.2 feet. Sorry. Among the structural changes, a second deck was added, and inspector's report refers to extensions to the poop deck, new transoms and replacement of many timbers. The work increased the ship's tonnage to 282.28. On October 29th, 1872, the consortium was made up of Winchester with six twelfths and two minor investors with one twelfth apiece, with the remaining four twelfths, four twelfths held by the ship's new captain, Benjamin Spooner Briggs. <coughs> captain Briggs and crew. Benjamin Briggs was born in Wareham, Massachusetts on April 24, 1835, one of five sons of sea captain Nathan Briggs. All but one of the sons went to sea, two becoming captains. Benjamin was an observant Christian who read the Bible regularly and often bore witness to his faith at prayer meetings. <coughs> In 1862, he married his cousin, Sarah Elizabeth Cobb, and enjoyed a Mediterranean honeymoon on board his schooner, Forest King. Two, two children were born, son Arthur in September, 1865 and daughter Sophia Matilda in October 1870. By the time of Sophia's birth, Briggs had achieved a high standing with his profession. 
Nevertheless, he considered retiring from the sea to go into business with his seafaring brother, Oliver, who had also grown tired of wandering life. They did not proceed with his product, but instead each invested his savings in a share of a ship. Olivia, Oliver, Julia A., Hallock and Benjamin in Mary Celeste in October 1872. Benjamin took command of Mary Celeste for her first voyage following her extensive New York refit, which was to take her to Genoa in Italy. He arranged for his wife and infant daughter to accompany him. <coughs> While his school-aged son was left home with his grandmother, Briggs chose the crew for this voyage with care. First mate, Albert G. Richardson, was married to a niece of Winchester and had sailed under Briggs before. Second mate, Andrew Gillen, aged about 25, was born in New York and was of Danish extraction. The steward, newly married Edward William Head, was signed on with a personal recommendation from Winchester. The four general seamen were all Germans from the Frisian Islands. The brothers Volkert and Bas Lorenzen, Iron Martins and Gottlieb Godsall, a later te- testimonial, described them as peaceable and first-class sailors. In a letter to his mother shortly before the voyage, Briggs declared himself eminently satisfied satisfied, sorry, with ship and crew. Sarah Briggs informed her mother that the crew appeared to be quietly, quietly capable if they continue as they have begun. Abandonment <coughs> New York on October 20th, 1872, Briggs arrived at Pier 50 on the East River in New York City to supervise the loading of the ship's cargo of 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol. His wife and baby daughter joined him a week later. On Sunday, November 3rd, Briggs wrote to his mother to say that he intended to leave on Tuesday, adding that our vessel is in beautiful trim and I hope we shall have a fine passage. On Tuesday morning, Mary Celeste left Pier 50 with Briggs, his wife and daughter, and seven crew members, and moved into New York Harbour. The weather was uncertain and Briggs decided to wait for better conditions. Good choice, good thinking. Because I don't, I don't know anything about, you know, sailing on a on a ship or traveling by sea. But <coughs> traveling on calmer, calmer weather is probably the best. He anchored the ship just off Staten Island where Sarah used the delay to send a final letter to her mother-in-law. Tell Arthur, she wrote, I make great dependence on the letters I shall get from him, and will try to remember anything that happens on the voyage, which he could be pleased to hear. The weather eased two days later, and Mary Celeste left the harbour and entered the Atlantic. While Mary Celeste was prepared to sail, the Canadian brigantine Del Guardia lay nearby in Hoboken, New Jersey, awaiting a cargo of petroleum destined for Genoa via Gibraltar. Gibraltar. Captain David Morehouse and first mate Oliver DeVoe were Nova Scotians, both highly experienced and respected seamen. Captains Briggs and Morehouse shared common interests, and some writers think it likely that they knew each other, if only casually. 
Some accounts assert that they were close friends who dined together on the evening before Mary Celeste's departure, but the evidence for this is limited to a recollection by Morehouse's widow 50 years after the event. <coughs> Del Gratia departed for Gibraltar on November 15th, following the same general route eight days after Mary Celeste. So, are they following Mary Celeste in hopes of stealing <coughs> the denatured alcohol? I mean, we have heard, I mean, you have to do, I mean, in those times there were things such as pirates, you know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for one minute that they were, but were they following them? because of their denoted alcohol or did they both come to an agreement of saying I need backup and was it like that? I don't know, we don't, we'll never know. Derelict. Derelict Gratia had reacted, had reached a position of 38, 20 and 17 15W midway between the Azores and the coast of Portugal at about 1 pm on Wednesday, December 4th, 1872, land time, Thursday, Thursday, December 5th, sea time. Captain Morehouse came on deck and the helmsman reported a vessel about six miles heading unsteadily towards Del Gratia. The ship's erratic movements and the odd set of her sails led Morehouse to suspect that something was wrong. As the vessel drew close, he could see nobody on deck and he received no reply to his signals. So he sent Devoe and second mate John Wright in his ship's boat to investigate. The pair established that this was the Mary Celeste by the name on her stern. They then climbed aboard and found the ship deserted. The sails were partly set and in a poor condition, some missing altogether, and much of the rigging was damaged with ropes hanging loosely over the, over the sides. The main hatch cover was secure, but the fore and Azaret hatches were open. Their covers beside them on the deck. The ship's single lifeboat was a small yard that had apparently been stowed, been stowed across the main hatch, but it was missing. While the barnacle housing the ship's compass had shifted, from its place and its glass cover was broken, there was about 3.5 feet of water in the hold, a significant but not alarming amount for a ship of, of this size. A makeshift sounding rod, a device for measuring the amount of water in the hold, was found abandoned on the deck. They found the ship's daily log in the mate's cabin and its final entry was dated at 8am on November 25th. Nine days earlier, it recorded Mary Celeste's position then as 3701 North, 2501 West of Santa Maria Island in the Azores, nearly 400 nautical miles from the point where Del Gratia encountered her. Devoe saw that the cabin interiors were wet and untidy from water that had been entered through doorways and skylights, but were otherwise in reasonable order. He found personal items scattered about Griggs' cabin, including a sheathed sword under the bed, but most of the ship's papers were missing along with the captain's navigational instruments. Galley equipment was neatly stowed away. There was no 
food prepared or under preparation, but there were ample provisions in the stores. There were no obvious signs of fire or violence. The evidence indicated an orderly departure from the ship by means of the missing lifeboat. So that is a bit strange. How a ship can appear out of nowhere, <clears throat> no, no signs of life, Um, um, let's continue, hopefully we'll find out what happened. Devoe returned to report these findings to Morehouse, who decided to bring the derelict into Gibraltar 600 nautical miles, 1,100 kilometres away, under maritime law, a salver could expect a substantial share of the combined value of rescued vessel and cargo, the exact awarding depending on the degree of danger inherent in the salvaging. Morehouse divided Delgatia's crew of eight between the two vessels, sending Devoe and two experienced seamen to Mary Celeste, while he and four others remained on Delgatia. The weather was relatively calm for most of the way to Gibraltar, but each ship was seriously undermanned and progress was slow. Delgatia reached Gibraltar on December 12th. Mary Celeste had encountered fog and arrived on the following morning. She was immediately impounded by the Vice Admiral Admiralty Court to prepare for salvage hearings. Devoe wrote to his wife that the ordeal of bringing the ship in was such that I can hardly tell what I am made of, but I do not care so as long as I got in safe. I shall be well paid for Mary, for the Mary Celeste. <coughs> Gibraltar Salvage Hearings The Salvage Court Hearings began in Gibraltar on December 17th, 1872, under Sir James Cochrane. The Chief Justice of Gibraltar. The hearing was conducted by Frederick Solly Flood, Attorney General of Gibraltar, who was also Advocate General and Proctor for the Queen in her Office of Admiralty. Flood was described by a historian of the Mary Celeste affair as a man whose arrogance and pomposity were inversely proportional to his IQ. And as the sort of man who, once he had made up his mind about something, couldn't be shifted. The testimonies of Devoe and Wright convinced Flood unalterably that a crime had been committed. A belief picked up by the New York Shipping and Commercial List on December 21st the inference is that there has been a foul play somewhere and that alcohol is at the bottom of it. On December 23rd, Flood ordered an examination of Mary Celeste, which was carried out by John Austin, surveyor of shipping. With the assistance of a diver, Ricardo Portonato, Austin noted cuts on each side of the box of the bow caused, he thought, by a sharp instrument, and found possible traces of blood on the captain's sword. His report emphasised that the ship did not appear to have been struck by heavy weather, citing a vial of sewing machine oil found up, upright in its place. Austin did not acknowledge that the vial might have been replaced since the abandonment. Nor did the court raise this point. Portonato's report on the whole concluded that the ship had not been involved in a collision or run aground. A further inspection by a group of Royal 
naval captains endorsed Austin's opinion that the cuts on the bow had been caused deliberately. They also discovered stains on one of the ship's rails that might have been blood, together with a deep mark possibly caused by an axe. These findings strengthened Flood's suspicions that human wrongdoing rather than natural disaster lay behind the mystery. On January 22, 1873, he sent reports to the Board of Trade in London, adding his own conclusion that the crew had got at the alcohol. He ignored its non-portability and murdered the Briggs family and the ship's officers in a drunken frenzy. <coughs> they had cut the bows to simulate a collision, then fled in the yard to su suffer an unknown fate. Flood thought that Morehouse and his men were hiding something, specifically that Mary Celeste had been abandoned in a more easterly location and that the log had been doctored. He could not accept that Mary Celeste could have travelled so far while unmanned. He has got a point there. James Winchester arrived in Gibraltar on January 15th to inquire when Mary Celeste might be released to deliver its cargo. Flood demanded a surety of 15,000 money Winchester did not have. He became aware that Flood thought he might have deliberately engaged a crew that he would kill Briggs and his officers as part of some conspiracy. On January 29th, during a series of sharp exchanges with Flood, Winchester testified to Briggs' high character and insisted that he would not have abandoned the ship except in extremity. Flood's theories of mutiny and murder received significant setbacks when a scientific analysis of the stains found on the sword and elsewhere on the ship showed that they were not blood. A second blow to Flood followed in a report commissioned by Horatio Sprague, the American consul in Gibraltar, from Captain Suffelt of the US Navy in Suffelt's view, the marks on the bow were not man-made, but came from the natural actions of the sea, of the sea on the ship's timbers. With nothing concrete to support his suspicions, Flood reluctantly released Mary Celeste from the court's jurisdiction. On February 25th, two weeks later, with a locally raised crew headed by Captain George Blatchford, from Massachusetts, she left Gibraltar for Dilemma. The question of the salvage payment was decided on April 8th when Cochrane announced the award 1,700 or about one-fifth of the total value of ship and cargo. This was far lower than the general expectation. One authority thought that the award should have been twice or even three times that amount. Given the level of hazard in bringing the derelict into port, Cochrane's final words were harshly critical of Morehouse for his decision. Earlier in the hearing, to send Del Gratia under Devoe to deliver its cargo of petroleum, although Morehouse had remained in Gibraltar at the disposable disposal of the court. Cochrane's tone carried an, in, an implication of wrongdoing, which, says Hicks, ensured that Morehouse and his crew would be under suspicion in the court of public opinion forever. Fouled play. The evidence in Gibraltar failed to support Flood's theories of murder.
and the conspiracy, yet suspicion lingered up of foul play. Flood and some newspapers, newspaper reporters briefly sus- suspected an insurance fraud on the part of Winchester on the basis that Mary Celeste had been heavily overinsured. Does any of this remind you of the Titanic, Titanic conspiracy? If it, ha- if, it ha- if it does remind you of that, let me know. <coughs> Winchester was able to refute these allegations and no inquiry was institu- instituted by the insurance companies that issued the policies in 1931. An article in the Quarterly Review suggested that Morehouse could have laid in rates for Mary Celeste, then lured Briggs and his crew aboard Del Gratia and killed them there. Paul Begg argues that this theory ignores the fact that Del Gratia was the slower ship. She left New York eight days after Mary Celeste and would not have caught Mary Celeste before she reached Gibraltar. Another theory posits that Briggs and Morehouse were partners in a conspiracy to, conspiracy to share the salvage proceedings. The unsubstantiated friendship between the two captains had been cited by commentators as making such a plan a plausible explanation. Hicks comments that if Morehouse and Briggs had been planning such a scam, they would not have devised such an attention-drawing mystery. He also asks why Briggs left his son Arthur behind if he intended to disappear permanently. Another suggestion event, another suggested event was an attack by Arifian pirates who were active off the coast of Morocco in the 1870s. However, Charles Eddie Fay observes that pirates would have looted the ship, yet the personal possessions of captain and crew were left undisturbed. Some of significant value, in 1925, historian <coughs> John Gilbert Lockhart surmised that Briggs slaughtered all on board and then killed himself in a fit of a religious mania. Lockhart later spoke to Briggs' descendants and he apologised and withdrew this theory in a later edition in a later edition of his book. Lifeboats In Cobb's view, the transfer of personnel to the yard may have been intended as a temporary safety measure. He speculated from DeVoe's report on the statue on the state of the rigging and ropes, that the ship's main hollard may have been used to dis- to attach the yawl to the ship, enabling the company to return on board when the danger had passed. However, Mary Celeste would have sailed away empty if the line had parted, leaving the yawl adrift with its occupants. Begg notes how illogical it would be to attach the yawl to a vessel that the crew thought was about to explode or sink. MacDonald Hastings points out that Briggs was an experienced captain and asks whether he would have effected a panicked abandonment. If the Mary Celeste had blown her timbers, she would still have been a better bet for survival than the ship's boat. If this is what happened, says Hastings, Briggs behaved like a fool, worse, a frightened one. Natural, phenom- natural phenomena. Let me. Right. Commentators generally agree that some extraordinary and alarming circumstances must have arisen to cause the entire crew to abandon, to abandon a sound and seaworthy ship with ample, provi- ample provisions. Duval ventured an explanation based on the sounding rod found on deck. He suggested that Briggs abandoned ship after a false sounding 
because of a malfunction of the pumps or other mishap, mishap which, which gave a false impression that the vessel was taking on water rapidly. A severe water sprout strike before the abandonment could explain the amount of water in the ship and the ragged state of her rigging and sails. The lower barometric pressure generated by the spout could have driven water from the bilges up into the pumps, leading the crew to assume that the ship had taken on more water than she had and was in danger of sinking. Other preferred explanations are the possible appearance of a displaced iceberg, the fear of running aground while becalmed and a sudden sea, sea creek. Hydrographical evidence suggests that an iceberg drifting so far south was improbable, improbable, and other ships would have seen it if there were one. Begg gives more consideration to a theory that Mary Celeste began drifting towards the Dullaby Reef off Santa Maria Island when she was becalmed. The theory supposes that Briggs feared that his ship would run aground and launch the yard in the hope of reaching land. The wind could then have picked up and blown Mary Celeste away from the reef. Whilst while the rising seas swamped and sank the yard, the weakness of this theory is that if the ship had been becalmed, all sails would have been set to catch any available breeze. Yet it was found with many of its sails furled. An earthquake on the seabed, a sea creek, could have caused sufficient turbulence on the surface to damage parts of Mary Celeste's cargo, thus releasing toxic thus releasing noxious, noxious fumes, rising fears of an imminent explosion, could plausibly have led Briggs to order the ship's abandonment. The displaced hatches suggest that an inspection or an attempted airing had taken place. The New York World of 24th January 1886 drew attention to a case where a vessel carrying alcohol had exploded, had exploded. The same journal's issue of 9th February 1913 cited a seepage of alcohol through a few porous barrels as the source of gas, gases that may have caused or threatened an, ex an explosion in Mary Celeste's home. Briggs' cousin Oliver Cobb was a strong proponent of this theory as providing a sufficiently alarming scenario rumblings from the hold. The smell of escaping fumes and possibly an explosion for Briggs to have ordered the evacuation of the ship in his haste to leave the ship before it, it exploded, Briggs may have failed to properly, properly secure the yard to the tow line. A sudden breeze could have blown the ship away from the occupants of the yard, leaving them to succumb to the elements. The lack of damage from an explosion and the general, generally sound state of the cargo upon discovery tend to weaken this case. In 2006, an experiment was carried out for Channel 5 television by Andrea Serra of University College London, the results of which helped to revise the explosion theory. Serra built a model of the hold with paper cartons representing the barrels using butane gas. He created an explosion that caused a considerable blast and ball of flame, but contrary to expectation, no fire damage within the replica hold. What we created was a pressure wave type of explosion. There was a spectacular wave of flame, but behind it was relatively cool air, 
no soot was left behind and there was no burning or scorching. Myths and false histories. Fact and fiction became intertwined in the decades that followed. The Los Angeles Times retold the Mary Celeste story in June 1883 with invented detail. Every sail was set, the tiller was lashed fast, not a rope was out of place. The fire was burning in the gallery, the dinner was standing untasted and scarcely cold. The log written up to the hour of her discovery. The November 1906 Overland Monthly and Outrest magazine reported that Mary Celeste drifted off the Cape Verde Island, some 1,400 nautical miles south of the actual location. Among many inaccuracies, the first mate was a man named Briggs, and there were five chickens, and there were alive chickens on board. So, yeah, okay. The most influential retelling, according to many commentators, was a story in the January 1884 issue of the Cornhill magazine, which ensured that the Mary Celeste affair would never be forgotten. This was an early work of Arthur Conan Doyle, a 25-year-old ship's surgeon at the time. <coughs> Conan Doyle's, Doyle's story, 1873, Habakkuk Jefferson's statement, did not adhere to the facts. He renamed the ship Mary Celeste the captain's name was J.W. Tibbs. The fatal voyage took place in 1873, and it was from Boston to London. The vessel carried passengers, among them with the titular Jefferson. In the story, a fanatic named Septimus Goring, with a, with a hatred of the white race, was suborned members of the crew to murder, tips and take the vessel to the, to the shores of Western Africa. The rest of the ship's company is killed, save for Jefferson, who is spared because he possesses a magical charm that is venerated by Goring and his accomplices. Conan Doyle had not expected his story to be taken seriously, but Spark was still serving as the US Consul in Gibraltar and was sufficiently intrigued to inquire if any part of the story might be true. In 1913, the Strand magazine provided an alleged survivor's account from one Abel Fostick, supposedly Mary Celeste's steward. In this version, the crew had gathered on a temporary swimming platform to watch a swimming contest. When the platform suddenly collapsed, all except the Fostyke were drowned or eaten by socks. Unlike Conan Doyle's story, the magazine proposed this as a serious solution to the enigma, but it contained mainly many simple mistakes, including Griggs. For Briggs, boys for Morehouse, Briggs' daughter as a seven-year-old rather than a two-year-old, a crew of 13 and an ignorance of nautical language. Many more people were convinced by a plausible literary hoax of the 1920s perpetrated by Irish writer Lawrence J. Keating, again presented as a survivor story of one John Pemberton. This one told a complex tale of murder by, by madness and collusion with Del Gratia. It included basic errors such as using Conan Doyle's name, Mary Celeste, and misnaming key personnel. Nevertheless, the story was so convincingly told that the New York Herald Tribune of July 26, 1926 thought its truth beyond a dispute. 
Hastings describes Keating's hoax as an um, as an impudent trick by a man not without imaginative ability. Later career and final voyage. Mary Celeste left Genoa on June 26, 1873 and arrived in New York on September 19th. The Gibraltar hearings with newspaper stories of bloodshed and murder had made her an unpopular ship. Hastings recalls that she rotted on wharfs when nobody wanted her. In February 1874, the consortium sold the ship at a considerable loss to a partnership of New York businessmen. Under this new ownership, Mary Celeste sailed mainly in the West Indian and Indian Ocean routes, regularly losing money. Details of her movements occasionally appeared in the shipping news in February 1879. She was reported at the island of St. Helena, St. Helena where she had called to seek medical assistance for her captain, Edgar Tuthill, who had fallen ill. Tuthill died on the island, encouraging the idea that the ship was cursed. He was her third captain to die prematurely. I don't think that was a curse, I think that's just uh, unfortunate circumstances. In February 1880, the owners sold Mary Celeste to a partnership of Bostonians headed by Wesley Gove. The new captain, Thomas L. Fleming, remained in the post until August 1884, when he was replaced by John C. Parker. During these years, the ship's port of registration changed several times before reverting to Boston. There are no records of her voyage during this time, although Brian Hicks, in his study of the affair, asserts that Gove tried hard to make a success of her. In November 1884, Parker conspired with a group of Boston shippers who filed Mary Celeste with a largely worthless cargo misrepresented on the ship's manifest as valuable goods and insured for $30,000, which equates to $850,000 today. On December 16th, Parker set out for Port-au-Prince, the capital and chief port of Haiti. On January 3rd, 1885, Mary Celeste approached the port via the channel between Ganav Island and the mainland. <clears throat> in which lay a large and well-charted coral reef. The Wasloy Bank Park deliberately ran the ship onto, its, onto this reef, ripping out her bottom and wrecking her beyond repair. He and the crew then rowed themselves ashore, rowed, rowed themselves ashore, sorry, where Parker sold the salvageable cargo for 500 to the American consul and instituted insurance claims for the alleged value. When the consul reported that what he had bought was almost worthless, the ship's insurance became a thorough investigation which soon revealed the truth of the over-insured cargo. In July 1885, Parker and the shippers were tried in Boston for conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. Parker was additionally charged with willfully casting away the ship, a crime known as bautry, and at the time carrying, carrying the death penalty. The conspiracy case was heard first, but on August 15th, the jury announced that they could not agree on a verdict. Some jurors were unwilling to risk prejudicing Parker's forthcoming capital trial by finding him guilty on the conspiracy charge, rather than ordering an expensive retrial. 
the judge negotiated an arrangement whereby the defendants withdrew their insurance claims and repaid all they had received. The battery charge against Parker was deferred and he was allowed to go free. Nevertheless, his professional reputation was ruined and he died in poverty three months later. One of his co-defendants went mad and another killed himself. Begg observes that if the court of man could not punish these men, the curse that had deviled the ship since her first skipper, Robert McLennan, had died on her maiden voyage, could reach beyond the vessel's watery grave and exact its own terrible retribution. In August 2001, an expedition headed by the marine archaeologist and author Clive Custler announced that they had found the remains of his ship embedded in the Washroy Reef. Only a few pieces of timber and some metal artefacts could be salvaged. The remainder of the wreckage being lost with the, the coral, the coral Initial tests on the wood indicated that it was a type extensively used in New York shipyards at the time of Mary Celeste's 1872 refit, and it seemed the remains of Mary Celeste had been found. However, dendrochronological tests carried out by Scott St. George of the Geological Survey of Canada showed that the wood came from trees, most probably from the US state of Georgia, that would still have been growing in 1894, about 10 years after Mary Celeste's demise. <coughs> and that was Mary Celeste. And that would be it for, uh, for today's episode guys uh again i hope you enjoy this one i hope you enjoy our previous episodes as well don't forget to follow us on instagram at our thine truth show and until next time have a great one bye